0: Welcome to Write Medicine, a podcast that explores the minds, motivations and practices of people who create content that connects with and educates healthcare professionals. I'm your host, Alex Housen, a former nurse, a medical sociologist and an education writer and researcher in healthcare. Join me to learn from education professionals about resources and tools of the trade, and listen to stories about what drives them in the medical education field. If your work involves planning, designing, or delivering education to healthcare professionals, this podcast is for you. This episode of Right Medicine is sponsored by CME Palooza, the bestest, wittiest, and freest online conference for CME professionals. CME Palooza Fall is happening on Wednesday, October 19th, with a full day of innovative education on a variety of topics you won't see discussed anywhere else. Check out all of the information at cmepalooza.com. Hello, and welcome to Right Medicine. I'm your host, Alex Hausen, and today I'm here with Don Harting, a CME writer, and we're going to be talking about competencies for medical writers in the continuing medical education, continuing professional development field. Welcome, Don. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Alex. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So please, let's start by um, telling listeners who you are and what you do.
1: Well, first, once again, thank you so much for asking me to be a guest here. It's really a pleasure. I have very much enjoyed listening to your podcasts as I prepare lunch for myself over the past several weeks and months, and uh, I've really enjoyed getting to know your guests better, and I find your podcast very easily listening and uh, thought-provoking, and uh, I just like to keep coming back to them over and over again. So it's a real pleasure and an honor to be here today, so thank you. Um, You asked me to introduce myself a little bit. Uh, I'll try to do that and try not to go on too long. Um, I consider myself kind of a refugee from the newspaper uh, journalism field. Uh, That was my first career. Uh, And uh, I left that career um, back around 2007, 2008, uh, with a lot of help from the American Medical Writers Association. Uh, And if you hear me refer to them again, I'll be calling them AMWA. Uh, AMLA helped me make the transition from kind of uh, mainstream healthcare journalism to medical writing, and then they also opened my eyes to the whole existence of what I like to call CME writing, but which could more accurately be described as um, developing content for uh, the, in the field of accredited continuing education in the health professions. And um, one of my first jobs uh, was as a medical writer developing needs assessments in the oncology space for a company in Atlanta. I was working remotely living in Pennsylvania, uh, but I was working remotely for a company called IMEDEX down in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm. And I was developing uh, oncology needs assessments full time uh, for several years. And they sent me to my first alliance meeting. And that was another epiphany that really opened my eyes to the existence of um, the whole field of accredited continuing education in the health professions. And I think that's when I started reading the journal, the Journal of Accredited Education, uh, excuse me, the Journal of Continuing Education in the Health Professions. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, I don't know, there's much more to it than that, obviously, but uh, that'll get you started. If you have any follow-up questions, I'd be happy to uh, answer those for you.
0: Yeah, so I think that's that's a, a good start. And you talked a little bit about your journey into uh, CME uh, CE or CME CPD. There are so many terms in this field. There of course, are. That there really are. One, <laughs> that is one of the um, issues that, that that kind of fold into. Um, the topic of competencies uh, to some
1: yes, extent. Yes, I so, expect we'll be coming back to that. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so tell us um, what your interest is in competencies for medical writers in continuing medical education.
1: Well, okay, I'll, I'll be getting to that very shortly, but it occurs to me that I left out something kind of important when I was trying to describe mm-hmm. about where I came from or what I'm Go doing ahead. today. And that is... Um, <clears throat> partly because my first needs assessments were all about oncology. I kind of developed a specialty in the hematology-oncology space. And so I'm constantly writing about uh, hematology-oncology, and, and it's really a fascinating topic that I love to write about because it's, it's a continuing story. It, it kind of uses my journalism skills, which is, you know, when you're a journalist, you, you tell the story, and you follow the story. You don't just tell the story once. You follow a story over a period of time. And in the hematology oncology space, you're constantly updating the story. It's like, when last we left you, there was no cure for, you know, hepatocellular carcinoma. But today we have effective treatments. Uh, And it, or it might be for melanoma or it might be, hopefully soon it will be for glioblastoma. And uh, it's exciting. And those kinds of things really float my boat. I love to be able to uh, talk about, or excuse me, write about uh, breakthroughs in cancer medicine. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's kind of a, That's kind of my wheelhouse. That's what I really enjoy doing, and I enjoy serving clients who ask me to do that for them. Um, Now, with respect to what you talked about, competencies, yes, you're right. Uh, That's a topic of great interest to me. Uh, I forgot when I was doing my self-intro to mention that um, for a number of years, with the help of other co-investigators, I was uh, surveying the field with respect to best practices uh, for writing CME needs assessments. Mm-hmm. We started in 2014, and we were uh, fortunate to ha- <clears throat> have had the chance to display our work at uh, both the Alliance meetings and uh, at Amwa meetings uh, for a number of years. And uh, that I think that's kind of what got me interested into or interested in the field of well, n- you know, what are best practices for for writing these needs assessments? What what are considered industry standard? Practices, you know, and what is kind of outside the the pale, you know, outside the norm, uh, in all kinds of areas, in terms of the sources we use, the evidence we provide, how we present it, um, the um, the rigor or lack thereof of the of the evidence, the types of references we cite, um, all all kinds of things. It gets down into the nitty gritty of the evidence that we produce to show that there is a gap a clinical practice gap or a learning need and how that varies from writer to writer, uh, from client to client. Uh, but also how it varies over time. Uh, the kinds of references that we might cite today uh, might not have been cited 10 years ago, uh, either because it wasn't thought to be professionally acceptable or because those references didn't exist. Uh, and now I'll find myself citing a YouTube video (laughs) Hmm. And in my reference, I'll say, the key portion of this video starts at minute 30 and it ends at minute 56. And this is where the key opinion leaders uh, clearly states the practice gap. And I think it's safe to say that I might not have cited a reference like that 10 or 15 years ago. So uh, this idea of how best practices have evolved and also how Mm -hmm. best practices are changing and also how the competencies of the medical writer who likes to consider himself or herself competent uh, to do this work uh, needs to change. Uh, another example is how the reference how we re- manage our references. I mean, now, I mean, think about all the reference manager software applications that are out there. I mean, mm-hmm. I can hardly keep them straight, but <laughs> you know, I have to learn EndNote, I have to learn NMS Word, uh, Microsoft Word, I have to learn Mendeley, pretty soon I'm gonna have to learn Zotero. Uh, And there are others that I haven't even mentioned that probably other people who are listening to this podcast uh, know far better than I do. So and these are things I need to learn so that I can keep my clients happy because these are the the ways my clients uh, manage references for their needs assessments. So this kind of gets into the whole idea of, of key competencies.
0: Yeah. And often as, uh, when you're working, if you're, if you're working as a freelance medical writer in CME, CPD, you're often working with a range of different clients. And some of those clients don't necessarily have solid systems in place for collecting, storing and retrieving. References And so Absolutely. as a writer, you have to, you know, you're in a position to um, really educate your clients about what some of these best practices might be. Mm. Um, let's talk a little bit about, um, I mean, you, we are here to talk about uh, competencies. And um, as you know, the Alliance, the uh, Alliance for Continuing Education in the Health Professions, has spent a lot of time and effort um, over the last 10 or 15 years, at at least two time points, in fact, to develop uh, national learning competencies for CME, CPD professionals. But as you mm-hmm. and I both know, writers have not actually been explicitly addressed in those uh, competencies. So I'm curious, um, I know that your work in the needs assessment arena has led to your broad interest in competencies, but I'm curious to hear a little bit more about um, what you see as a competency model for CME CPD writers and why that model's important.
1: Well, thank you for asking. Alex, I really couldn't ask for a better question at this point. Uh, and what you're asking is very, very top of mind for me right now. It's mm-hmm. also very top of mind for, uh, my co-investigator, uh, Haifa Cassis, MD, uh, a, a former physician, now a medical writer, um, who lives in Boston. And, uh, she and I are developing this competency model together. Um, and, um, I'm not even sure where to start (laughs) because I don't want to take over, you know, I don't want to speak for an hour. Um, I guess what I like to say is I kind of rehearsed this quote a little bit. So forgive me, but um, we're trying to stand on the shoulders of giants and continue to move the field ahead when it comes to uh, competencies for medical writers. We didn't start this. We're kind of surfing a wave in a way. Uh, And in a way, the wave really got started uh, in 2017 with the publication uh, uh, of a competency model for medical writers. uh, And the lead author on that article was uh, David Clemo, and he had like maybe 20 or 30 co-authors. These are the giants on whose shoulders we're standing because they published the first competency model for medical writers writ large. Uh, And then after that came uh, a kind of a follow on article. Uh, and it's actually less of an article than a training outline, I guess, that was published by AMWA, which is a a training outline for regulatory writers. So they try to kind of narrow the focus a little bit from medical writers writ large to regulatory writers. And I'm not sure uh, the background of all your listeners, but just very briefly for the benefit of listeners who may not be that familiar with the medical writing field, I think of medical writers as a very broad spectrum of which – uh, it had, they're very, there are subcategories and probably, probably the largest subcategory of memberships are the regulatory writers. And then there are also publication writers and I see you nodding there. So I think you're in basic general agreement with this categorization. Uh, and then we call ourselves CME writers. We're a small subset of the, of the, of the larger, uh, set. Uh, and then you might say maybe patient, uh, patient education materials writers, um, and then there are many others that, uh, pl- please forgive me if I'm leaving your specialty out of this <laughs> broad brushstrokes <laughs> uh, uh, composition here. But in any case, uh, regulatory writers are leading because they're the most numerous, uh, and uh, and but we're trying to follow the lead of those who uh, developed competency, a competency model for regulatory writers by doing something similar for what we're calling CME writers or sometimes CME CPD writers. Um, does that... Kind of answer your question or, or not so much?
0: Yes. No. So I and I want to follow up there. So there, there, there's what I'm hearing is that there's a push from within the profession or within the field of medical writing to develop competency models. And yes. your interest there is in really kind of uh, digging into a competency model for uh, a very niche or niche specialty, yes. which is mm-hmm. uh, medical writing in, in CME, CBD. Um, right. But why are competency model, why are competencies required at all? What, what do you see is the importance of being able to articulate competencies um, for medical writers in this specialty?
1: Well, I right now I really wish my co-investigator Haifa Cassis was on this call because uh, she's really uh, between the two of us uh, uh, this is her wheelhouse far more than it is mine. Uh, my wheelhouse on this project is the method we're using and I'm really hoping that you're going to ask about oh how what method are you using Don how are you trying to identify these competencies we'll get because they'll so. feel much more they'll feel much more at home but in general, what I would say, and this is something that I've learned from Haifa, who sent me an article uh, in from Medical Teacher, dated 2017, lead author Jocelyn Lockyer, who was one of my favorites, because Jocelyn Lockyer uh, was all about needs assessments, uh, you know, when I was uh, doing my literature reviews on needs assessments. So anyway, my understanding of competency-based education is... Uh, kind of an answer to the time-based education where it's really more about what you can do and the competencies that you can prove that you can do as opposed to how much time you spent in school. And in competency-based education, they have these things called entrustable professional activities, at least in the, phys- in the, the area of physician, activi- physician education, uh, which kind of translate to things that we can trust you to do on your own. In other words, once you've received the training uh, and the education, once you have the knowledge and the skills, we can trust you to do this on your own. Uh, And so we are kind of translating that into deliverables. Uh, Medical writers are given assignments. We are assigned to uh, write a needs assessment. So we are entrusted (laughs) with a professional activity, which is to develop a needs assessment. And we get it on day one, and we deliver it on day 14 or day 21. And it's uh, a professional activity, and that's a deliverable. And so in our competency model, what we're trying to do is identify, well, what are some of these key deliverables in addition to the needs assessment? Is it the slide deck? Is it the monograph? Is it these uh, interactive, excuse me, these interactive patient case simulation? Uh, Is it the white paper? Is it some other deliverable that we've never heard of, but is really hot and is going to be, you know, uh, de rigueur uh, in the next three to five years?
0: Uh, Because that's one of the,
1: the escape room, (laughs) right? Okay. The podcast script. (laughs) Uh, Because one of the, 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 the approach that we're taking is what are the competencies that will be needed by the next generation of CME, CPD writers? Not just the writers of today, but the writers of tomorrow, because we want our work to have some shelf life. Uh, we don't want it to be out of date as soon as it's published. So we are going to be asking our expert panelists uh, during the, the rounds of the Delphi to try to help us uh, identify uh, what are the key deliverables that will be needed that the, these uh, the next generation of CME cpd writers will need to develop, be able to develop. Uh, along with the key bits of knowledge, knowledge topics, the key skills, uh, and the key attitudes that they will need to have developed in order to be able to excel um, in, the, in the field of uh, developing content for accredited continuing education in the health professions.
0: So you've thrown out that, that thread of uh, how you're approaching your development of the competency model. So let's talk about that. And and when you're talking about that, I think it would be really helpful for listeners if you describe and define what you mean by the Delphi, I call it a Delphi, Delphi okay. model.
1: Okay. Sure, sure. Is that how they pronounce it in Scotland by any chance? <laughs> it's probably like a kind of
0: Northern European, yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So uh, thank you so much for teeing this up uh, now. Uh, so uh, this, this question, uh, I, I really do love the Delphi and I call it the Delphi um, because I think it's a way of approaching a topic that you might not otherwise be able to approach and get some pretty reasonable, um, have, have a pretty reasonable chance of success at having meaningful data. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the Delphi method is takes its name from the Delphic Oracle back in Greece when people would consult it for prophecies of the future. And then it was uh, used uh, and kind of renamed by uh, Norman Dahlke in the 1950s, I think it was, uh, when he worked for the Rand Corporation, mm-hmm. when they were trying to forecast uh, the effect of technology on atomic warfare. Uh, and then And then it's been used many other ways. Uh, Lately, it's been used a great deal in health services research, uh, not just in the United States, but all over uh, Europe and all over the the world. Uh, It's used in Australia and uh, all all over the world. So um, basically, you form a panel of experts uh, that we call our Delphi panel. And um, there's no set number to the number of exact, you know, correct number for Delphi panelists. We hope to have about 30. um, But that's could be twenty, could be two hundred. There's no real right or wrong number of panelists, but you ask these panelists uh, your, your questions over a period of rounds and now it could be two rounds, could be four rounds. Uh, we plan to have uh, three rounds. and um, we tried we aim this is a hope at this point. it hasn't been done. Our aim is to uh, derive a consensus among the panelists well what are the the most important th- things that the next generation of CME writers need to know what are the most important skills that they will need to have what are the most important attitudes and finally what are what will be the key deliverables that they will be uh, asked or assigned to write um and then we i don't know i does that answer your question alex i think the, in terms of the method that's you know we plan to um quantify, uh, our, 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 quantification, our, you know, our quants analysis is very, very simple. Uh, basically we're going to be asking these panelists to number their agreement on a scale of one to five. Um, and if you, um, uh, basically we're, we're copying a, uh, a Delphi study that we found on PubMed that comes from Den- uh, Denmark, uh, the Danish, um, uh, Danish med schools uh, came up, uh, did a Delphi to try to figure out what the f- doctors of the future, that is, the physicians of the future, will need to know about digital health, and they used the Delphi method. And we're we're not we're using it as a model. We're not like you know copying that study word for word, but we're using that yeah. as a model. Uh, and we plan to have uh, graphics that show uh, the degree to which people, uh, our Delphi panelists, agree. That such and such a knowledge topic is will be essential uh, for the successful CME writer of the future.
0: So you're essentially asking your panelists to rank or use a Likert scale to, mm-hmm. um, to, to to kind of rank what the most important um, likely topics are, and then once once you have that ranking and that quantification, is there a discussion element to the Delphi or the Delphi model that you're using. Um, are, are are you expecting yes. your panelists? Well, we hope, to we hope. interact with each other in some way.
1: <laughs> yes, thank you. Yes, we hope that that will happen, and that is that's one that's why we have the rounds. Um, we hope that there will be some discussion between, especially between rounds two and three. The first round is uh, open ended, where people will be uh, invited to um, suggest. Knowledge topics, or skills, or attitudes, or deliverables that we haven't listed already, because we 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 start with a list and you know and say, hey, is this list complete, or are there, have we missed something? And if we miss something, you know, tell us and we'll add it uh, next time. And so, on the second round, people will rate the importance of these various knowledge, skills, attitudes, and deliverables. Uh, then, between the second and third rounds, pr- hopefully, p- uh, panelists will read well, and, and as we ask them to rank. We ask them why. Why are you ranking this so highly? Why do you feel so strongly about this, either positively or negatively? Uh, and hopefully, when other panelists, the twenty-nine other panelists, read why you, uh, Mr. P- panelist, feel so strongly that such and such a knowledge topic absolutely has to be top of the top of the list. Uh, everybody has to know this. Um, or not, you know, totally irrelevant, this, you know, does not belong in the the curriculum, Uh, that will stimulate discussion among other panelists. Uh, And one of the key aspects of the Delphi is the anonymity of the uh, panelists. There is no way Mm -hmm. to associate a name with a position, a name with an argument. Uh, Therefore, we try to get, uh, we try to, uh, the purpose of this is to try to weigh the merits totally on their excuse me, weigh the arguments totally on their merits and not on the prestige or lack thereof, perceived lack thereof, of the person who is putting forth the argument. It's sort of a way to democratize the, mm-hmm. um, uh, the, 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 the mechanics of the consultation. Because I think we all know that if, you know, five or six people or 10 or 12 people get in a room There becomes, and you may know a lot more about this than I do, uh, 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 Alex, because of your sociology background, but there tends to be kind of a deference to the senior person in the room or the most powerful person in the room or the most, uh, you know, whatever, prestigious or whatever. And uh, that person can kind of tend to guide the group consensus in a direction he or she wants it to go. Um, But we're trying to avoid that with the Delphi.
0: No, I I think that's a really uh, great point, actually. Again, I think um, especially especially when being in the room now is... uh, The power dynamics are so cut by gender and sexuality and race and ethnicity and other power indicators and power markers. It can be extremely challenging to... um, Moderate and facilitate a discussion that does actually lead to consensus. Um, and wow, you just thing, said a you just
1: said a mouthful. Can I repeat yeah. that back? Because I just I, I heard <laughs> you say that these days the power dynamics of uh, in groups are so I can't can't remember the word you used uh, fraught maybe or or the high profile that between the the gender, the sexuality, the seniority or whatever, all these other markers that it can be difficult to actually develop a consensus among a group of individuals. Is is that accurate?
0: Absolutely. Well, you know, there are different, um, uh, channels for power, uh, as, mm, as you right. know. And so when you're in that group situation, you really need a moderator who knows how to manage group dynamics in mm, uh, mm-hmm. a discussion based setting in order to kind of lead that group to consensus you know, over a period of time um, where, and in contrast, this Delphi or Delphi model um, opens up an opportunity for a more democratic and anonymized and... Opens up an opportunity for a more democratic
1: and and anonymized and meritocratic discussion of the options.
0: And I think the other thing that uh, is important is certainly... And it may not pertain to the kind of consensus that you're hoping to achieve, but when you look at guideline, you know, expert consensus guideline development Mm -hmm. in um, the 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 clinical world, there's some pretty good research, (laughs) like oncology. There's some pretty good research to show that the um, the groups that tend to um, comprise the members of consensus uh, guideline panels. Mm-hmm. are, um, you know, the power dynamics are very interconnected and web-like. And so their uh, their connections to industry, for instance, are sure. very deep mm-hmm. and complex. And those connections, um, we don't talk about this very much and we don't want to think about it very much, but those connections have some bearing on the direction that discussion often takes, sure.
1: even sure.
0: in uh, uh, clinical pa- practice guideline settings that are consensus based. Sure. So it's mm-hmm. very important mm-hmm. to have a methodology, as you're describing, that um, tries to mitigate uh, any uh, kind of influence that would be hard to untangle post hoc. So what do you, so you've talked a little bit about um, how you're approaching the development of the model. What do you hope to achieve with a competency model for writers? You did mention curriculum. So I'm assuming that at some point you are envisaging um, a curriculum that addresses the competency needs, but... um,
1: Well, that's a great question. First of all, I just want to... to Uh, yeah. First, the first response is a real gut check because uh, what we, we can't try to do more than we can do. If you know what I mean? Oh, of it's course. like Haifa and I are working like as volunteers and like we, we have clients, we have families, we have full time, we have jobs, we have homes, da, 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 and we're doing this in our free time. And so we have to be really careful about what we say we're going to do and, and try to do and, 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 be careful not to overpromise and under deliver. So at this point, I think it's fair to say that what we do plan to do is to present the method at, at AMWA and then present the method at the Alliance uh, and then present our results uh, at, at AMWA and then present our results at the Alliance and then to submit a, a manuscript for publication in a peer-reviewed journal. Uh, and then also uh, we, we're, we're promising to present our preliminary results in a poster form to every one of the Delphi panelists who will also be asked to serve for free. You know, No honorarium, no financial incentive. Uh, They're going to try to have to take you know a couple hours out of their out of their uh, day or week uh, in order to you know read responses from twenty nine other people. Um, So, uh, with respect to, but the honest answer to your question, Alex, is that um, uh, after this is published and after this is done, I am really looking forward to delivering instruction according to the model. Um, I'm at the age now. You know, I just uh, qualified for Medicare. I'm starting to think about um, teaching and training the next generation of CME, CPD writers. Um, and I'm very much looking forward to delivering instruction according to this model, which, you know, hopefully will, you know, have some evidence uh, base to it. Um, and hopefully, you know, make make the world a little bit better place uh, for having for having done the research. I think when we get into the attitudes... I think that's going to be essential. Uh, and also when we start talking about uh, what, I'll use the word ethics, what ethical uh, positions or attitudes, ethical attitudes uh, or, uh, will be needed uh, for the CME CPD writers of the future. Um, I have heard it said by one of my clients that there's no need for the needs assessment to be fair balanced, so long as the instruction that is delivered under the grant is fair balanced. Now, that's not how I was trained. I was trained that not only does the instruction need to be fair balanced, but the needs assessment also needs to be fair balanced. And my concern is that perhaps the next generation of CME CPD writers may not be fully appreciative of the need for fair balance in a needs assessment, or what, what could be the consequences of the lack of fair balance in a needs assessment. Um, I think that this is my hope, actually, is that this will be the topic of some discussion uh, among the Delphi panelists. And perhaps with the promise of anonymity, uh, among the panelists, they will feel free to <laughs> tell it like it is because we work in a very unusual world um, and it is potentially a very controversial world uh, and that is we are trying to educate uh, clinicians <laughs> about best practices to improve patient outcomes mm-hmm. when push push comes to shove uh, the money that we get paid to deliver this education, in many cases, comes from uh, pharmaceutical companies. And they have a product to sell. And they have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders to maximize profits and returns. Uh, That, at the end of the day, is where the money comes from. Uh, The government is not funding these activities. Uh, There is not a pot of money uh, within (laughs) uh, CMMS to provide continuing education for physicians. And if we only used money that was from the government to support these educational initiatives, uh, they would be far fewer and far poorer. Um, so I think we live in this world where uh, there is a tension. And I th- my dream is that these com- this competency model that we publish will reflect that reality. Uh, and neither be Pollyanna and be uh, um, rejected outright by people who work in the field every day and say, huh, you know, no funders ever going to go for that. That's never going to get support. That's never going to fly. That that program's never going to see the light of day because nobody's going to fund it. You know, there's that argument. But then there's the other argument that says, oh, my word, this this program is so tailored to increase prescriptions of drug X at the expense of drug Y because it it panders to the commercial supporter. And we don't want to go down that route either. Uh, I'm very much hoping that uh, our competency model will reflect uh, the real world needs to find balance um, uh, in the creation and the crafting of the content for commercially supported uh, continuing education for members of the health professions.
0: I'm glad you raised the issue of ethics. I, I do think it's a very important uh, issue. I actually teach uh, writing and edit, medical writing and et- editing ethics at the University of Chicago in the professional certificate program. And I'm often struck by um, how, how surprised students are at the range of ethical considerations in developing... Um, Medical content, uh, not only in the world of CME, but in in other areas of of medical writing as well, and I think it's worth it's worth reiterating that the ACCME, uh, twenty twenty tran- um, standards uh, of of content do actually reiterate fairly forcefully the need for fair balance in all content associated with developing uh, CME CPD. Uh, activities and and programs and like you I would definitely consider the needs assessment as part of that content development process because often with a very well-written needs assessment um, you know you're laying the foundation for the content development uh, for the activity or the program
1: itself. ACCME does have new uh, uh, standards for integrity um, in uh, continuing education you're right you're absolutely right. Uh, however, the ACCME also does uh, permit um, the pharmaceutical companies to uh, to put out RFPs and uh, does not pr- prohibit accredited um, providers from responding to RFPs. Um, and I'm not sure when was the last time you looked at an RFP, uh, but I would encourage you to do that. Um, because... Uh, some of them are quite clearly tailored to the to the uh, supporters' uh, commercial interests. It's not, there's no other way to put it.
0: I don't think that's new, <laughs> by any means. But having well, I, no,
1: I'm not. I'm not suggesting that it is new, but I am suggesting that it do, it is confusing when the ACCME says that there's a that the. Um, Determination of learning objectives uh, should be done separately uh, or independent of the commercial interests of the supporter, uh, and then to try to reconcile that statement with some—not all, but some of these RFPS that come out that appear directly related to, you know, increasing sales after a product launch.
0: I'm I'm sure that's the case. There's always scope in responding to an RFP in. Um, challenging, or at least expanding on, and uh, providing a wider view on what what learning objectives should be based on what you're seeing in the in the uh, the process of of developing the needs assessment. So, I've certainly seen RFPS that have been fairly. Um, on the edge there in terms of of what you're describing but the needs assessment that's been developed uh has been has been much broader in order to address the issue of of fair balance and i think as medical writers that's what you're saying right is medical writers need to know what fair balance looks like and one of the competencies in terms of ethics is being able to identify when they are being asked to do something that is inappropriate in terms of um, the the wider uh, set of standards for transparency and integrity that not only ACCME lay down, but also the other uh, accreditation bodies.
1: Which kind of brings me back to How I got started uh, trying to benchmark best practices in writing these assessments is because, you know, rightly or wrongly, I have this imaginary picture in my mind of individual medical writers, uh, highly educated, uh, working part time as freelancers in their spare bedroom in Illinois or Nebraska or Colorado or Washington by themselves uh, for a client who is trying to win a grant uh, to develop some education. And if that client is asking them to, we'll use the word focus, that needs assessment in a way that's not fair balanced, uh, how much strength does that freelancer working (laughs) on a dining room table or in a a spare bedroom have to push back uh, with this client and say, listen, no, I'm sorry, that's not That's not ethical. That's not how we do things. That's that's not the professional way to do this. Uh, The client says, no, cut to the chase, you know, uh, there may be six or seven drugs in this marketplace. Just talk about one, just talk about two. Or or when you do talk about them, uh, talk about the funders drug for seven paragraphs and talk about all the other drugs for one paragraph. I mean, that's the kind of thing that I think we need to talk about. You know, well, what are best practices? how what is best practice for a fair balanced discussion of competing therapies uh, in, a, in, a, in, in a in a therapeutic setting um, well hopefully in the development of this competency model we'll
0: find some answers to that question and in the meantime Don Harting, thank you so much for sharing your perspectives with listeners of the right medicine Don notes and I share this experience that medical writers often ask CME writers where to find training and how to get started in CME writing. Don says that clients share with him how challenging it is to find skilled writers for CME-related work. And over the years, this has been my experience too. Don and his co-investigator Haifa Kassis think that the medical writing field needs a competency model as a basis for training programs and skill building that is directed specifically toward the need for codified expertise in CME writing. I can only agree. What do you think? Thanks for spending this time with me and Don. And as always, I would love to hear what you think about this episode and the podcast in general. Which topics would you like to hear about more and who would you like to hear from? Email me or message me on LinkedIn. And if you'd like to support the podcast, please write a review or buy me a coffee. Just click the icon on the podcast webpage. And if you haven't yet joined the Right Medicine community, there's a link in the show notes. You'll get early access to episodes and as a thank you, you'll receive downloadable bonus content from the show. Until next time... I'm your host, Alex Housen, and this is Right Medicine.